When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight, following the widespread condemnation of the ramming of a Garda car in Cherry Orchard in Dublin, we ask, are policing resources to blame or do the issues run deeper? Claire Brock gets the lay of the land on day one of the National Ploughing Championships in County Leash, where emissions targets are high on the agenda. I think farmers aren't getting the credit they deserve for the work that they're doing and the journey that they're on. And later, inflation hits our shopping baskets yet again as the cost of groceries reaches its highest for 14 years. Join the conversation online with your comments and questions. Hashtag tonight, VMTV. Good evening. First tonight, there has been widespread condemnation and calls for action following the emergence of shocking video footage of a Garda car being rammed to the cheers of onlookers in the Cherry Orchard area of Dublin last night. Now, the incident followed a car chase, which began after complaints were made to the Gardaí about dangerous driving in the area. Now, the footage has been widely shared on social media, but in case you've missed it, let's take another look. The actions of those in those videos were widely condemned by Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, who spoke of the incident today when he was visiting the National Ploughing Championships. Well, it's disgraceful and indeed very concerning incident. I can, I'm glad to report that the two Garda members in the vehicle were uninjured uh, and then were able to summon assistance, which quickly arrived to help them to restore order uh, in, the, uh, in the Cherrywood area. There's been uh, vigorous policing operations in that area over the last number of weeks. Uh, we've seized vehicles uh, and, and arrests have been made and people have been brought before the courts. So there's been a lot of enforcement work. There's a full investigation now underway, but also then we have to look to tonight and the subsequent nights as well. Here in studio to discuss this are People Before Profit Councillor for Ballyfirm at Drimna, Hazel Denortu, Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture, Martin Hayden, Sinn Féin TD for Sligo Leitrim, Martin Kenny, Special Correspondent for the Irish Examiner, Mick Clifford, and Crime and Security Correspondent for the Sunday Times, John Mooney. And John, I'll come to you first of all, because as we were discussing off-air, although this has been very high profile and that footage has been shared very widely in the last 24 hours, this is not a unique occurrence in Dublin or elsewhere. 
It isn't really, and I think it's really important to put this in context, that joyriding has been a problem in most urban areas across Ireland for the past 30 years. Um, and these type of incidents, um, they happen and they occur. Some incidents you have, um, you know, guard patrols being rammed and attacked like this or rocks or whatever thrown at them. So not only is joyriding not unusual, rammings like this are also it, relatively commonplace. It does commonplace. happen. I'm not saying it happens every night of the week, but it does happen. And certainly joy, joy, joyriding is an issue. So in that particular area, and it, I'm always very cautious about labelling an area as having a particular type of problem. But some of, there has been quite a substantial amount of guard operations in that area to deal with this problem. Indeed, Drew Harris, Drew Harris said there, there are people before the courts on this. Um, so it's a problem there. But, but it, just to talk you through what's likely to happen with this, these people have already been identified. Their doors are going to be put in the next 48 hours and they'll be arrested in charge and possibly, you know, held on bail, etc. But this is more reflective of a much more significant problem of uh, teenagers and young people getting involved in all different types of violent organ or a crime. And this is just the outworkings for this. I think what people they get really shocked when they see this and it's caught on camera and it's circulated and it's just so out of the norms um, to what they normally experience in their own in their own daily lives. But I mean, a couple of months ago, I was driving out to Holtz and I came across a car completely overturned in the middle of the road. Um, myself and another motors had to see whether there was someone in it. And it was joyriders again had taken this car, overturned it and ran off. So this this is a problem. It, it, it happens. I think we've just got to be careful that we don't blow it out of all proportion. Um, you know, there's no real parts of Dublin that the guards can't go into. Okay. That, that was a particular nasty incident. The guards involved handled it perfectly. They didn't overreact. They didn't... Um, Okay. They're very mindful of people uh, being injured and stuff like all right. that. Um, all of that being said, um, Hazel's Norton, you're a representative uh, for that area. Um, but if I'm a German, is part of, part of that whole area. There is a community here who are genuinely being terrorised by this kind of behaviour on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think we need to start off by saying we have condemned it as public reps in the area and the community have openly come out today and condemned it as well. Um, this has been happening for a long time now. We've seen a peak in it this time last year and it's actually that time that as a part, across party we met with senior managements within DCC. At that particular time, there was an incident where one of the councillors from Sinn Féin were attacked and um, we raised... Did you specifically these... targeted in that instance? It was up uh, witnessing what was happening. It wasn't at this um, piece where it was last night, but it was down the road and um, they were targeted in outside homes, new homes that had been built and when they were rallying the cars per se, they were down abandoning the car outside of this particular home where the bollards were and burning it and residents had been on and saying that uh, that they couldn't take it anymore. It was intimidation. There is a high level of intimidation there. We can't deny that fact. Um, and we have been raising this and we've been saying for some time we could see this happening. Unfortunately, we they, like I know there's talk about this is a um, decades long issue. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened. Um, and there has been videos of Snapchats and stuff being shared for a very long time now. And um, we only had the Minister for Children out, Roderick O'Gorman, there on Thursday and he was uh, brought back up. He was a visit Monday Youth Services. And he was brought up to this particular area and he was shown the evidence, which had a day before, at three or four in the day, there had been a, a car 
we're presuming was robbed. So know? if this is now has, has drawn more attention to this, but this is actually more widespread than a lot of people might realise, mm -hmm. is there a chance that this might actually be the prompt that, that results in a long-term fix or might it just be more people looking at your community, looking down on it, and then things could get even worse? Well, this is going to probably have both effects, unfortunately. Um, but I think we have worked with the organisations and we have put proposals forward to say how we should tackle this. And evidence-based within the area has said, if we do outreach work, we go out and work with these particular individuals, ask what exactly is going on, how we can integrate them into the community. I mean, it's, um, it's a piece that takes a particular type of approach let's say, and we're looking to kind of support the services in doing that because when it does come down to a Garda resource issue, it then has already become, become a criminal issue. And what are we going to do then? We can't keep kind of pushing people into that way. We should be trying to get to it before it gets to that level. You say Garda resource issue, but yours is a community which, for better or worse, is, is known as having issues of this sort. And as you say, this is, is relatively commonplace. One would think that your community has already gotten maybe a disproportionate level of resources to try and deal with this problem and it's not getting any better. So what would more resources do differently to those you already have? Yeah, and, I, and that is the perception. Um, but I suppose there's services there. We have got many services. It's, it's the resourcing of those services. So those services are fighting for every penny that they have and they were never really restored to the fully, full budget that they have. And they will tell you themselves, if you're out there, like we've the Equine Centre, the Orchard Centre, we have um, St. Dalton's. Like there's really good services out there. There's Garda Youth Diversion Programmes, Family Base. Mm. And they will tell you from evidence-based that they need more outreach workers. It's the outreach piece that it seems to be the that will work, that has benefited and yeah. that they can explain and show the results. Uh, Mick Clifford, how do we get to a situation where this ends up being perceived locally as an us versus them? That it's it's certain cohorts of locals versus the Guardian, that they don't see each other as being part of the same community? Alienation. I mean, you know, there's urban deprivation. There's no question mm. in the world about that. And, and, and the, the depth of alienation. And it's in a small minority, I, I'd suggest, of families uh, w within the community. And as Hazel pointed out, you know, particularly there, there are some very good services there in a general sense with the equine centre and places like that. But you have individual families and you can even go back to the years of austerity when the likes of the community development projects were all dismantled and that sort of thing. And that now even people from those families that really need, and I know this is an overused word, but that word trauma, there's stuff that's gone down there through generations. There's some people, and I'm not specific about this community, but mm. in areas like that in cities around the state. That is the scenario. Is that making excuses, though, for illegality? No. I don't believe so. I, I, I genuinely don't. Ill illegality happened. It should be prosecuted. The full force of the law should be used there. It's a question of what do you want to do in terms of ensuring that this doesn't happen again and that state resources are not having to be put into, for example, putting people in prison rather than trying to ensure that kids don't get to the stage where, they, where they, their attitude to the Gardaí is as violent as that was last night. Uh, Martin Kenny, you're Sinn Féin yeah. spokesperson on justice. Do you think Gardaí are appropriately resourced to deal with issues like this? Uh, look, there's, there's always issues of resources. I mean, Ballyferma Garda Station is a part-time Garda Station at the moment, and I think there's only one patrol car for the area, and that's part of the issue. Um, but a major part of it is... Sorry, there's only one patrol car? Only one patrol area. car in the area, yeah. Which is probably the one which that Which is probably the, the one that was there. Like, I'm not sure if it was or not. Which is why the public order units are being sent in the same Exactly, exactly. Now, and that, that's not to say, you know, that it's, it's, it's going to be a heavy-handed policing approach that's going to deal with this. It's not. 
it's a community approach that will have to deal with it. But when you have a specific incident like this, where you have, you know, the most outrageous of behaviour, and, you know, we, I think we all feel for the Gardaí that were involved, who were attacked. We feel for the danger of the public, all the people who were eyewitnesses that was watching this going on. Their lives and, and, and safety was in danger as well. And, you but know... That might have been the case, but many of them seem to take a lot of joy from what this Well, that's, that's one of the problems. You know, I, like, I, I've got letters here from, from residents out there who are worried about their children that their children are watching this going on? Are they going to be taken with all this excitement? You know, there's families out there who, and, and the vast, vast majority of them in, in all of these areas, are decent people that want the best for their children, want the best for their community. They see this going on. They're afraid their children will get tied up in it. And, you know, it, it, is, it is a difficult time for them. And we do need to put resources in. We do need to have better youth services in place for them. We do need to, put, to get the investment into the communities. And we do need community guardy as well that are trusted and work with the community because that's one of the big things that we have absent in a lot of these communities. Are they going to get those, Martin Hayden? Because we've seen today the GRA says that this is indicative of the need to increase resources for the force. They say that they've been beating a drum for years and years and they're not listened to. And this is a manifestation of everything they've been trying to highlight for a long time. Well, first of all, I have to say, look, what happened and the footage we've seen is completely unacceptable and is utterly disrespectful to the rule of law um, and also to law-abiding communities in which this is happening who unfortunately now get branded um, because we're having discussions like this, whole areas and really good communities where there's an awful lot of good community work happening, uh, gets branded in that way. You know, Ballyfermot Clondalkin, as, as Hazel will know, is, is part of the, uh, the West Division of the Dublin Met Metropolitan Region. I think um, it's been about 11% increase in Guardian numbers since 2017. Um, it's, it stands about 750 or thereabouts now at the end of, uh, of August for, for that region. Um, and, and I have to agree with what's been said here on the panel that, yes, we absolutely need to see the full rigours of the law be brought against the perpetrators here. This is unacceptable behaviour and can never be tolerated. But the solution to this on a broader basis in terms of supporting communities, uh, either in Ballyfermot and Dawkins or in many of our regional towns that have challenges in, in certain areas and pockets as well, is, is it a multi-agency response? It, the Gardaí alone cannot solve this. And that's where we're looking at trial and projects, you know, like the increased investment we had in our youth diversion services, an extra 7 million euro in last year's budget uh, across the 106 uh, youth diversion projects um, with uh, Minister McEntee's uh, youth um, justice strategy okay. for 21 to 27. It is an area there where right. we're all now changes. I want to get Hazel's view in a moment and whether you think that's adequate for your area. But first of all, I just want to come back to you, John Mooney, because sometimes you hear from, from Gardaí on the beat that they feel like maybe there's a disconnect between what they're seeing and the view of the Garda Commissioner because Drew Harris is focused on the big picture, on broader societal trends, and he's not looking at the micromanagement of individual situations, which is why you have stations like that local one that only had one patrol car and this evening have none. Well... I think when you're thinking about these issues, you've got to think about it, that it's not a Garda issue, it's a societal problem. And the real issue with dealing with crime like this or juvenile crime or social uh, uh, disorder and how it manifests itself in communities is that the response that's required is so unpalatable to the general public, to politicians and everything else, that it never gets dealt with. Kids that are getting involved in drug dealing, antisocial behaviour, serious crime and violence, there's lots of stuff going on in their lives and they need a different type of outreach work that is not really, and should never be led by the police. It should be led by people that have a particular skill set that understand what's going on with them. And kids so, so guards to, are being sent in to do the work that other Well, the guards, are, you see, guards respond to issues as after they are happening not before them. They, they, I mean, the guards aren't going out. Re, they, they do some preventative crime work, but primarily they respond to emergency situations. Um, so the, the type of uh, sort of a re response that's required to this stuff 
it's widely known. It's not, you talk to any criminologist, anthropologist or whoever, they'll tell you what's required with this stuff. But to do that requires such a vast shift in procedures and policies that it just doesn't get any sort of political traction. And therefore, we, went, we go around in this circular uh, argument. Is, is that a lot of our issue then, Hazel, that you have a situation where there are more and more policing resources, but you're actually not dealing with the root causes and there's a lot of, of cure, but no prevention? Yeah, and John has actually made a very good point there. And, and that's what we're seeing. You know, I grew up in Cherry Orchard and from it, I, I grew up witnessing this and that was our daily life. And I think it's a case of you want to break the back of it. And today we had kids going into the school because this happened outside of a primary school and had to witness the cars being removed and Dublin City Council being out and marks on the road and stuff. And people, genuine people from Cherry Orchard and are just trying to rear their kids, go to work, do a daily life, you know, like ourselves, like everybody that wants to get on in society. And constantly having to live and relive in this cycle. We need funding that's available. Like, even when the minister was out, he said the target that that's needed is a very bespoke approach because it's not the same for every area. It is a particular area that obviously, as you've said, has this recurrence over and over again. And is there a danger then for, for a community like yours? I don't want to talk up the idea that this might be inevitable, but the public order unit have been stood up there for the, this evening and we've already been talking about how this is more commonplace than the videos might mm -hmm. let on. Is there a danger that the community ends up even feeling more marginalised because you can't just be policed by rank-and-file members in a standard Garda car, that you need to have the public order unit on yeah, the well, we've, we've had that. We'll have that for Halloween. We'll have that for every Halloween. You know, be, and it, it, unfortunately, I mean, when you see, um, you know, Garda and riot police or whatever are standing back ready to kind of come in, and it's not the first time. And I hope to say it's the last time, but maybe it won't be if we do not get that annual funding that people can put in place. It's not going to be fixed today. It's not going to be fixed tomorrow. It needs a long-term approach, and that's the problem. Martin Hayden, is in, in fairness, the Commission on the Future uh, Policing recognised that it's a multi-sector response that's needed to address this. Um, as public representatives, we would have set on our local joint policing committees um, that has public representatives as well as community representatives. We're seeing a new model being rolled out now with these local safety partnerships, which are being piloted um, in three areas, uh, North Inner City Dublin, Longford and Waterford, and I think it was yesterday that Longford published their plan where the local communities buy in, in, in conjunction with the local authority in the other areas have come together with the plan as what's needed from multi-agency response. Gardaí alone can't be expected to address issues like this. They deal with the symptoms at the end, uh, as John has outlined. What we need to do is, um, is, is, is continue better the engagement across the agencies. Okay. That, that piece that Rodrigo Gorman was talking about, where we get all the agencies working together to prevent these issues happening in the future. Uh, Mick Clifford, just let's reflect on, for a moment on the role of social media in all of this. Because if, as we've been discussing, this is relatively commonplace, but now you have mm -hmm. these, these small isolated examples which have now been blown up, that there's a danger that social media ends up contributing to the unfortunate reputation that areas like this have. Huge danger, Gavin. I mean, it's the, it's the same role as social media in a lot of different aspects of life now. And, uh, you know, there's obviously positives to it, but there's a huge number of negatives, and that's a very obvious one. And just the whole area, the, there will be a cohort out there from one end of the country to the other that will enjoy viewing that sort of thing and who knows what it might spur them on to do. Hopefully not. Most people who view it, obviously, are appalled at the site of it. And, and again, you could, you could suggest that without the social media, would there have been the reaction in general mm. that there has yeah. been? But, I mean, there's no doubt it amplifies everything in every direction. Well, speaking of, of online social media, obviously people are using our hashtag tonight, VMTV, to get in touch with their comments about all of this. And John Mooney, one user this evening is suggesting that we should take the British approach and use force to disperse issues like this. That really hasn't worked out well in Britain. They've huge problems with uh, social disorder between all sorts of communities. And uh, thankfully, our police force is very much embedded in the commu in communities right across the country. And people tend to call the guards. And what 
everyone forgets about all of this is that local people down in Cherry Orchard were the ones who summoned the guards to the scene there last night. Okay. So the British police, I'm, don't, I'm not trying to be disparaging towards them, but they don't have the same sort of uh, a relationship with communities that the guards have. Right. The guards are seen as part of the community. Okay, on that note, let's put a note on that there. My thanks to Hazel and to John. The rest of the panel are going to be staying with us because after the break, the future of farming, a top priority at the Ploughing Championships. We bring you a special report. Don't go away. Now, welcome back. Today, over 91,000 people attended day one of the National Ploughing Championships in Rathaniska in County Leash, where the event returned following two years of cancellations due to COVID-19. Now, the agri-food sector is facing a 25% cut in its carbon emissions by 2030, and the future of the industry and its ability to adapt to a greener future has come into sharp focus. Claire Brock went down to County Leash to hear from those on the ground. Welcome to Rathaniska in County Leash, home to one of the biggest outdoor events in the whole of Europe. Over the next three days, up to 300,000 people will gather here to see the best of farming at the National Ploughing Championships. But away from the ploughing competitions, machinery and the enthusiastic crowds, farming is in a state of flux. There's a need to change and looming large is the new target of cutting emissions by 25%. Are farmers now expecting grants? Are they expecting a cash input? Are they expecting financial support yeah. to achieve this? I suppose, first of all, it hasn't been agreed by farmers. Farmers are very concerned about this. Government have really uh, put this uh, target, uh, legally binding target on the sector. And yes, it's clear that farmers will need, like every other sector, a huge level of investment. And where does the responsibility or the cost responsibility lie for the decarbonisation of food production? Should it lie totally with farmers or should it be spread across the entire supply chain? Uh, and that ultimately does include the consumer. So there's a huge cost to be borne at farm level. And we have to remember that a lot of farmers operate on less than €10,000 per year income. So really expecting all that cost to be borne by those farmers really isn't tenable. So what about the future of farming and will the younger generation embrace or run from change? There is a worry there. We can't say there isn't, but there is, at least our young members, they want to get stuck in, get involved. They want to be upskilling themselves. They want to get involved in the policy and ultimately it's policy that's going to be changing it. So proposals that we have on the board and we're putting to government, we believe will have a difference. Do you think there's less reluctance among younger farmers to embrace change? I would think so, yes. I think they're very much up for the challenge. They want to, they want to take it on and they're a little bit less fearful because they don't know, they haven't been, not set in their ways, but they haven't, they've an opportunity to change and they've been told their sector has to change, they have to get on with it. All eyes then on things like organic farming, where we're way behind our European neighbours, devoting just 2% of our land area to it. But new schemes to entice farmers are gaining some attention. We have a lot of farmers there that, that are, are seriously looking at it and that are very close to farming organically. A lot of our dry stock farmers in particular uh, would consider themselves the term of almost organic. So if they can just uh, maybe uh, change their system slightly, not spread fertiliser, not spread any chemical pesticides or sprays, uh, then they'll uh, fit into an organic scheme very easily and very seamlessly. Uh, they'll reduce their costs and they're getting a premium in the post uh, to help 
help them in that conversion journey and hopefully we can get a premium on the product they're selling at the end of the day as well. Farmers point to new technologies saying they'll play a big part in managing emissions on farms and in order to cut carbon pollution they will be informed by data gathered in machines such as this one. And I suppose what we're using this technology to do is to better quantify how much methane are coming from the different animal types in Ireland and to also identify, well, how can farmers reduce those methane emissions? This technology here is quantifying how much carbon is being locked up into the soils and the effect of things like land use, farm management practice and soil type and climate on how much carbon is going into our soils. I asked the Minister for Agriculture if there's a fear around transforming how we farm. I think farmers aren't getting the credit they deserve for the work that they're doing and the journey that they're on. And If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What's really important to distinguish here is what we're not looking to actually reduce our food production. We're looking to reduce our emissions footprint uh, and to bring our emissions down while maintaining food production. Because, of course, you know, when you look around the world, when you look at the growing world population, when you look at how, because of climate specifically, it's becoming more difficult in many parts of the world to produce food. We in Ireland, because of our fortunate position in relation to being a food-producing nation, it's important we maintain that. My question is, do you think that the farming community is ready to transform at the pace that's required? I do. I think farmers are very up for that. And what's really important is that as a government and as minister that they're supported in doing that and that they're also assured that their 
economic welfare is going to be central to how we continue in that journey. There's no doubt that reaching the 25% is a stretch, as is each achievable when you say it's a stretch? It is achievable, but it's going to be a stretch and each sector of society is going to have to stretch to reach that 51% um, economy-wide reduction. Agriculture's target as part of that is 25%, but other sectors of the economy have up to 70% uh, reduction in their emissions. But So it's, everybody is challenging themselves here, but I have full confidence. Some of the exhibitors are looking at new technologies to help meet the farm droid, a solar-powered robot that plants crops and pulls weeds without the need for chemicals. I do see that the future of farming is not going to be, we've seen a, a trend where farms and machinery has got bigger and bigger and bigger. You'll see with this machine it's actually going to get smaller. It's a little bit like we've all seen the robotic mowers working in our garden and it's replaced a big ride-on mower. Farmers are very innovative and there's products like this that will help them be more efficient, more sustainable long term. So new tools to change old ways. But that alone won't reach our carbon goals. The question is how far will farming have to go to get there? Clare Rock reporting from Rathaniska on day one of the Ploughing Championships. Martin Hayden, Martin Kenny and Mick Clifford are still with us in studio. We're also now joined by environmental journalist and commentator John Gibbons and the editor of Irish Country Living magazine, Amy McKeever. Uh, Martin Hayden, can I come to you first of all? Um, your colleague, Charlie McConnell-Logue, just said that it's a stretch to try and reach 25% carbon emissions uh, cuts by the end of the decade. He also said that it almost is Ireland's responsibility to feed the rest of the planet because a lot of the planet now can't grow enough food for itself. And we were reminded there from Justin McCarthy of the Farmer's Journal that farmers haven't agreed to or signed up to 25% cuts by the end of the decade. Which side exactly is Charlie McConnell on? Well, first of all, it's fair to say that 25% is a very ambitious target uh, for the agriculture sector. But I can tell you at the plough match today, um, you'd be very struck by... Um, the positivity and the enthusiasm there is um, at that show today. Yes, farmers have concern. Change is always hard for any sector. But the science and the innovation that was on display there, whether it was Carl at the Chagas stand, whether it was some of those new innovative pieces of machinery, um, when you look at what Chagas are doing in terms of their signpost farms, the 100 model farms around the country and the new practices that are being put in place, farmers are on a journey. It's not something that they're going to start doing tomorrow. They have been on a journey of producing their food more efficiently into the future. We obviously have to do that better into the future. Um, and, and that's what uh, we're very much up for that challenge. But he seemed to be suggesting that it was going to be a stretch for everyone. He was almost pawning off responsibility by saying it was going to be a stretch. Like, is the technology actually really there to achieve these 25%? So what we had was a Chagas Matt curve that was kind of based around us getting an 18% reduction in emissions. Um, and then the Department of Agriculture was the very first uh, State Department to develop a roadmap as to how we would reduce uh, our emissions. And that was um, a, a document called Ag Climatise. And 25% is additional uh, ambition to that. So that's why we have to revise that document. Um, and the last... A few percentage, yes, does require uh, the development of some new um, innovations and technologies that my department is investing an awful lot of money in research in right now. But we shouldn't get tied up on the 20 to 25% piece because we can't jump over moving uh, from the 10 to 15% piece, from the 5 to 15% piece, and farmers are on that journey already. And a lot of those measures that are in place now, those newer uh, elements and approaches, are all about getting the widespread uh, takeover of them from farmers all around the country, so, uh, which I believe will happen. John Gibbons, we can't get caught up on the 20 25% because we need to make the baby steps first. Yeah, the journey that Martin describes, uh, the journey, in fact, over the last decade has been a journey in the opposite direction. 
emissions across agriculture have risen by about 12%. That's a one-eighth increase in overall emissions uh, between 2010 and 2020. So, so rather than being on an emissions journey towards lower emissions in the sector, we're in fact in the, the exact opposite. It's interesting that the, I suppose, the ploughing match or the ploughing championships, they celebrate really the tillage sector. And if you look at the numbers on the tillage sector, since 1980, which is 42 years ago, Ireland's tillage sector has declined by 42%. So that's 42% decline in 42 years. Now, what's happened essentially is, particularly uh, in the last 10, 12 years, we've switched our agricultural systems away from tillage, which, of course, is a low emissions agriculture system. And this, by the way, is policy. This is policy that was uh, driven, if you like, by industry, adopted by government, and then rolled out. Now, it, that's It's policy. also economics, though, John, when you have like livestock quotas being abolished by the EU, for example, that suddenly it makes much more sense for farmers to move to livestock because that's where the money is. That's how they're going to feed their families. It's how they're going to feed the country. Well, livestock, particularly if you look at beef, which, of course, uh, pr predates the... the, the um, the change, the change in, in dairy regulations, beef, beef farmers have struggled in Ireland, like really seriously struggled. And it was mentioned in, in your VT there that we have about 2% organic system in Ireland. Now, if you look at horticulture, which again is by far the most efficient way to, per hectare of land, the low emissions way to produce food for people is horticulture. In Ireland, we have either the lowest or the second lowest area of horticultural land in the, in the European Union at about 1% of our agriculture system. If you look at countries like Holland, for example, this, Holland is the world's second largest um, food exporter in an area the size of Munster. And the reason for that is they have an intensive horticultural system. What we have instead is, in fact, uh, if you like, we have, we've specialised at a very unfortunate time in, in Irish history. We've specialised in the most emissions-intensive forms of agriculture at the very time that all the international movement is towards emissions okay. reductions. Uh, Martin Kenny, the government says that it's not going to compel any individual farmer to do anything. Rather, it just wants to incentivise them to move back towards the likes of tillage. How likely do you think it is that people can pivot and move away from the established forms that they've been doing for decades? I think it's going to be difficult because um, for a start, a lot, a lot of farmers have invested a lot. They've got big borrowings. They've, they've put in up milking parlours in the last 10 years and were encouraged to do so. We talked about white gold not that many years ago. This was the, the whole talk. And, uh, you know, in fairness to farmers, they'll do what makes a profit for themselves. They'll make do what, what feeds their family, what looks after the... Do you the, have faith in the government then to do whatever is necessary well, to make that more yeah, profitable? Well, we, that's, that, that's the difficulty. I, I, I think, you know, we, we, we really need to be working with the farming community to, to, to understand that they are the custodians of the land, that they will do what's the right thing to do, providing they can see that it makes sense for them. And to make it sense for them, for instance, you know, the, the cap reform, all of those parts of it will all have, play a role in that. But I, I think really, you know, like I live in, in County Leitrim, the land is poor, we have an awful lot of forestry, we have an awful lot of people going out of farming, and uh, we generally, what they're producing is, is suckler cows, most farmers have eight to ten cows. If they're told, look it, you'll make as much money with two cows less, mm. providing they can see they'll make as much money, they'll keep two cows less okay. because it's less, it's less work for them. But in, but in general, the problem isn't in places like where I am. The problem is in the places with the really intensive farming. Okay. We need to try and move to a model where it's less intensive and more biodiversity. Right. Let me bring in more Amy biodiversity on that. Amy, you farmers, were, you paid for that. You were at the, the, the ploughing match, as it's referred to by your industry today as well. Martin Hayden reckons that there is optimism on the ground for farmers to take on this challenge. Did you get that same sense of optimism or is there some resistance about what this is going to mean for them? I think that uh, with, there, is, there is resistance to it on the basis of what we've been talking about here, the economics of it, how it's going to be afford, how farmers are going to afford to be able to do it. The 18% um, reduction that can be achieved, that's on the basis of all farmers um, putting a lot of 
basically money and economics into their farms, it's going to cost a lot of money. There is support there. And then, of course, that there is that big gap. And I think that that's the big uh, scary thing for farmers, that they don't know how to get from the 18 to the 25. And the concern there, of course, is that if they can't do it, what happens then? Because farmers, as the points have been made, they are dependent on, on cap supports. They're dependent on uh, to, to, to make farms viable. So how... If they can't reach these targets, what happens then? Are they going to be supported to do it? But there are lots of positives in terms of what farmers can actually achieve. And there was a number of, of points that came out of the um, out of the VT. But it does come back to economics as well. If you take the organics, the reason that we don't have enough, uh, we don't have more organics is there's not really a demand for organics in this country. Do you know what I mean? One of the the people there said that we were very close to organics. Irish consumers consider our product to be of a superior standard and that it's... That you don't need to go organic. Well, it's it's that there's no... We're in a a, a, a severe income crisis now, you know, credit crunch, uh, Mm. and people can't afford really to be adding... You know what I mean? To be putting more expensive yeah. food products okay. into their basket. Uh, we'll touch on the price of food in part three, but I want to come to, to Mick Clifford first of all. This is a political um, headache. It's a very difficult uh, bull to grab by the horns, if you'll uh, allow me to use another agricultural <laughs> analogy. Um, do you think the government has done that by requiring 25% from the agriculture sector when we know that the, the window could have been as high as 28 or 30%? I don't really. I think the government was forced really into doing something like that in terms of the overall targets. They had no choice. And to be honest with you, Gavin, the whole area of reducing emissions, and I hate to sound pessimistic, but I despair. I mean, I listen to John frequently and he strikes me as being spot on with the science. That science, we're also getting that from the likes of the IPCC. This is the reality. This is where the planet is going. But it would seem that the body politic, not just in this country, but in most countries, and you have to assume that they believe anyway, that they're reflecting the feelings of, of the majority of people, the transformative change that's required, the will, unfortunately, certainly so far, is just not there to do it. Uh, John, do you think that we are prepared societally to deal with the cost of that? Because the cost of that sort of transition, I mean, there's estimates that, that um, the Irish Farmers Journal, that Amy's publication has even commissioned, and they reckon that this could potentially cost as many as 30,000 jobs in the sector if they are to meet the targets that have been set out by government. And those are the more modest targets. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about some of those estimates. I think some of them were, were based on, on calculations, assuming, for example, that, that if a farmer stops doing X, that he doesn't start doing Y. Right. So I think, I think it's possible to, to present a particular point of view uh, in, 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 those type of, in those type of surveys. We already support farming, and so we should, by the way, mm. to the tune of about €2 billion Euros a year already. So there's a very substantial social transfer into the agricultural community, and so it should be. But in exchange for that, we have to expect and really call on the farming community uh, and the whole sector to step up and do its full share. At the moment, the 25%, uh, which I think uh, Minister McConnell agrees mm. is probably not going to happen, that 25% represents far and away the lowest ambition of any sector in Ireland. And, and the fact is that that 25%, if it's even achievable, means that other sectors, like, like the energy sector and transport, right. are facing really impossible okay. challenges. Amy, you wanted to get in there. On the cap, and um, as John's pointed out, the, the cap and that money is going into uh, far, into farms. The idea was to keep food at an affordable price for consumers. That was the basis of it. And over time, that has changed to reflect what consumers want, what the what uh, Europe wants out from their farm systems. And that's right. And uh, as time goes by, that will change. But 
I, I would suggest that there is multiple things that farmers can do on land. We're an open economy. We can't really decide the price of energy and farmers can actually be involved in that energy transition. Mm. Both on their farms, they could increase their productivity and they could save money by being able to generate energy on okay. farms by microgeneration but, but schemes. But on, on that note though, Martin Hayden, it's already a, uh, an industry that works on fairly tight margins and a lot of farmers would think even if, if it's good for society to make these sort of changes, to install solar, to go to biomass, for example, that they might not have the capital to actually do it. They simply don't have the money to make the transition. And that's where the state will have to step in and support farmers in that uh, step. But some of those measures farmers will adopt, um, whether they're in Leitrim or Kilkenny, because it might be better for their bottom line. And, you know, we see, and I'm a farmer myself by trade, and I see many of my neighbours, the income volatility that happens in different years with the income from food production. Um, if we can have a steady income from the likes of solar farming, from carbon farming, from anaerobic digestion, uh, to supplement the activity that's happening, while also producing the food, the farmer's core business will still remain to produce top quality food then that will help uh, supplement that income. But the really important point to make here is okay, briefly, let's please. not go back to a protectionist state. Ireland was a very poor country in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. Um, and this idea that, you know, we'd only produce the food we need for ourselves, the, the supply of food internationally is very, very integrated now. And what we should focus on is food being produced in the most efficient places around the world. Our grass-based system is some of the okay. most uh, efficient production systems. That obviously is beef and dairy. We do grow good tillage in certain parts of the country, right. not in Leitrim, but plenty in Kilkenny. I, 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 and, 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 the, and the fact is that you know, okay. we'll never compete right. with the Ukraines or France in terms of that. Well, we'll always grow grain, but I, not I, enough for I that. suspect John will contest the idea that we're one of the more carbon-efficient places for producing meat Absolutely. as well. But, but, but I want to come back to that in a minute because yeah. we're going to leave it there. My panel is staying with us because after the break, we're going to be speaking about food and the price of groceries, which is climbing, unfortunately, yet again. Welcome back. My panel of John Gibbons, Minister Martin Hayden, Martin Kenny, Mick Clifford and Amy McKeever are still with me. We're going to talk about the price of groceries in just a moment. But before the break, we were talking about Ireland as a beef producer and Martin Hayden's contention that Ireland is one of the more carbon efficient beef producers. And John Gibbons, I know that that's a claim that you have some issues with. Yeah, I think we, we need to look, first of all, there was a, an EU study uh, conducted in 2017 and that it found within the union that Ireland was, for every euro of food production, Ireland produced more CO2 per euro of food production than any other country in the then EU28. What that, that tells our food us is... production is so meat-heavy. Well, yes, of course, meat and dairy. Because that, and as I say, these are extremely emissions-intensive. Unfortunately, they're extremely emissions-intensive. And, and, the, and the emission that we're most concerned about here, of course, is methane. Methane is a far more powerful greenhouse gas uh, and the livestock sector globally is a huge contributor to rising methane emissions. Um, since pre-industrial, global methane emissions have trebled, trebled. Now, when we think of CO2 rising by 50%, global methane emissions of this extremely powerful, dangerous greenhouse gas have trebled. And the agriculture, the livestock, the ruminant livestock sector is the largest single contributor to that increase. So you cannot get away from the fact that our food production system is an extremely emissions intensive okay. system. But that is again to look at Ireland as a silo and to say, okay, we should have less beef production off our pasture-based system and only compare what's happening within Ireland. The fact of the matter is, the reason that we're meat heavy here is because we have our pasture-based system. We're one of the few countries in the world that can use grass, which is a more efficient way of producing that beef and dairy product that is needed and that is demanded around the world. Um, and but it's demanded around the world, but to, to the detriment, apparently, of the environment, if we're fulfilling a no, need which but the, shouldn't the, be but there. No, but the point is, if, we, if it's not produced off Irish farms and off Irish grass, it'll be produced... 
cutting down uh, rainforests. Uh, rainforests in Brazil are off yeah, different uh, areas. And, like, you know, it is back to the point that our system is integrated. The food should be produced in the area where it can produce more, most efficiently. And Ireland does that really, really well. And also, and we back still to, have work to do to make it more efficient. But of course. It's undermined, though, if, we, if then there's carbon emissions in sending all of that overseas. Like, I was in, the, I was in Japan with the Taoiseach two months ago, and there was, there was supplies of beef jerky that was made with Irish beef. I can't imagine it's too climate-friendly to be sending that halfway around the world. But you're competing with other countries that produce that and maybe don't produce it as sustainably. But to make the point back about the impact on the economy as well, this can't get lost. Our uh, government has to take a holistic approach. The reason our climate emissions, while they're all ambitious as they are for agriculture, are lower than other sectors is because the programme for government and and we in government recognise the intrinsic value of agriculture and food production to our rural economies. Since 2010, when you talk about emissions going up, also at the same time what went up was the value of our uh, agri-food and drinks exports went from €8 billion euro value to the overall economy to €14 billion. Euro. And our next uh, target on Food Vision 2030, our 10-year strategy, is to bring that up to €21 billion without increasing the, okay. uh, the quantity of the food we produce, but by okay. increasing the value we, we, of it. I know this, we're not going to resolve this tonight, so we're going to have to move on, because we do want to talk about the price of food, because there are new figures today from consumer analysts Kantar, which show that grocery price inflation has hit 11% in the last 12 months. That's the highest rate since their records began back in 2008. Now, the back-to-school essentials, such as bread, ham, cheese, yogurt, cereal and milk, have risen by 19.5%. Um, Amy McKeever, I suspect it's probably not all that much of a surprise that food prices are going up when we're talking about the tight margins that those who produce those foods yeah. are also facing. Yeah, and just to the, to the point that was being made there as well, the, the, the products that we're producing here are very nutrient-dense as well. They're high-quality products that give a lot of nutrition. And I think this is, this is something that would be a concern here in terms of as food prices rise, that people would move away from a high-quality, nutrient-dense diet to uh, a lower-quality diet, um, and that would impact on people's health and you know, the well-being of people in the country. But yes, as people are going back to, to school, it's certainly not a time that we want to see food prices rising. But we haven't tracked inflation over the last 12 months at the same rate um, with food prices. Uh, the, the food chain is very long. So it takes a while for, it has taken a while mm. for these food prices uh, increases to, to come to the consumer. Food, price, food prices have actually been deflation for the last 20 years since um, uh, real retailer um, competition came into the market and food prices have been going down. Mm. And that probably, in fact, kind of lessened the value of food in consumers' minds. And now that's going back up again, but it isn't a surprise. And even the food that has been consumed for the last six months, that was produced off inputs that were purchased last year. Okay. And those inputs so are gone now. So it's only going to get higher again. It, yeah, we haven't hit the top uh, of this. Mick Clifford, this, is, of course, is only going to end up hitting consumers in the pockets as well because no one else is going to absorb the losses along the way. No, that's the question. That's the whole thing. And it's just one of all the whole range of things that in terms of inflation are going to a lot of people. Um, I mean, the point Amy makes about, yeah, we've, we've, we've been so used to cheap food. I think that's there's no question about that. But the, the, the problem is that of all times, for us to have it normalised effectively, it has to come along with the effect of everything else happening at the same time. And I think that's the problem. Um, Martin Kenny, you just nodded there when Mick Clifford said that we've gotten too used to cheap food. And, and that's, of course, yeah. a reasonable point. But then uh, how can you then be well, part of arranging a national I, rally, I, I which, is, which is responding to the cost of living rising, if food is too cheap and we have to get, get used to it being dearer? Well, I've I, I seen a programme not that long ago. I think it was the last uh, grower in North County Dublin that was growing broccoli. And he was going out of business, I think it was for the sake of an extra five cent a kilo that he couldn't get from the multiple. Because... 
the, the whole lot is controlled by a small number of multiples that control the prices that are, are absolutely fleecing so the farmer. Pay, paying so paying them we more have, is going to inevitably result in a higher cost of living, and yet you're part well, of the coalition that's organising the demo. The main reason, the main reason why we have we have the food inflation and all the other inflation is because it's all linked back to energy inflation. It's all linked back to the price of gas going up, to the price of oil going up, and all of those things. If we had to cap those and keep those down before now, and we're working on that, as France and other countries done, their inflation hasn't risen to the same amount as they have in other EU countries. So I think, you know, we, we need to recognise that there are work to be done in all of that. But the point, as from the point of view of the farmer, most farmers out there are doing okay at the moment, but this, this is an unusual time for them. For the past 10 to 15 years, they haven't been doing okay. Even the beef farmer that Martin was talking about earlier, beef farmers have been losing money and on the margins for a very, very long time. The only sector in Irish agriculture that has done really well over the past 10 to 15 years has been the dairy sector. There is, And, and we, ha we have to deal with that and we have to find alternatives for farmers to be able to make a living. John, and they have to be compensated okay, for having uh, a more biodiversity-intensive John Gibbons, there is the danger, though, that if farmers are going to have to try and cushion their margins a little bit, that they're going to have to pass it on to consumers who just can't take any more. I think that is a, a huge a huge issue. I think um, protecting the, the people, if you like, the 20% the, the of people in Ireland who, who are in and about food poverty, I think this is a, a huge issue and that's something really for a political response. But I would like to draw the lens out just a little bit. First of all, people may be surprised to know that Ireland, despite its reputation as a food producing country, we import 80% of everything you see in your supermarket is imported. And this isn't just the exotics like uh, bananas and coffee, 80% of everything. M many of the things you would expect to be Irish, like your potatoes, your carrots, your broccoli, so and if, so on. If we were more food self-sufficient, would that bring prices down? I, it might stabilise prices. But I think, Gavin, there's an even bigger issue beyond just the, the, the price, which is a very important one. But there's an even bigger issue. This summer, for example, France, which is one of the, the agricultural bread baskets of Europe, Agricultural production has been devastated in France this summer. We're not likely to experience what that means until this next winter and into spring of 2023. Because of the extreme heat waves, there are four heat waves hit France and Central Europe okay. this summer. That is going to have a, it's already had an extremely negative impact on food production. So I would suggest that for me, the number one priority in Ireland is that we achieve food security on this right. island. And at the moment, we're a okay. million miles from that. Not enough time, I'm afraid, to ask Martin Hayden how he's going to achieve that, or indeed what's in the budget. We'll find out this night week, I'm afraid. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thanks to everyone on the panel, John Gibbons, Martin Hayden, Martin Kenny, Mick Clifford, and Amy McKeever for joining us this evening. Don't forget our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And we're also now on Instagram. Tonight, VMTV is our account where you'll find all of our information about future shows. From all the team here, thanks very much for watching. Good night, take care, and see you tomorrow. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.